the bathroom then. The teachers. The teachers. The teachers. My brothers and sisters of color, we gotta do better No survival in this era if we turn it on each other Like a family reunited, they hate it when we together Now let's talk about it, listen to the teachers, let them tell you You want facts behind your questions, Dr. Rick, give them that Followed by wise words, introducing Dr. Michael Blanche Many guests and activists every week leading by example When there's problems, there's solutions Together we are the answer The teachers Hey, hey, hey. Uh, here we are once again. It's Dr. Rick Wallace, Dr. Michael Blanchard. Let me let me correct that. Let me correct that. Dr. Michael K. Blanchard. Hey, Doc, you was were you channeling Raj on uh what's happening? Cause you said, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think that's I think that might have been it. You channeling Raj. Quick, 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 quick joke. Uh, last night we're sitting up and, you know, in Houston, we have, we're in the middle of the, uh, Houston livestock show and rodeo, which is the largest rodeo in the world. And it's been going on forever. You know, okay. I'm 54 and it was going on far back as I can remember. Okay. So, uh, my son is sitting now. He's 30 and he goes, man, I haven't been to the rodeo in like two years, right. you know, to a rodeo concert because this week is Houston, uh, Houston heritage culture. So all the old time Houston rappers are there. Slim Thug, Lil Flip, uh, right. Face, and all those guys are all going to be were performing last night. Right, right. And he said, man, it's going to be crowded up there. He said, I haven't been in two years. And so, and then, so somebody else in the room said, well, I have never. And then I said, oh, man, I said, the last concert I went to the rodeo was the Jackson 5. And Marion fell out. This was like 1972. I was five years old. My grandmother took me. Wow. But, you know, I live in Houston, but he said, 19, so it was just the idea that he said, man, when you said Jack, I thought you were going to say Jagged Edge. You done went back a whole nother 40 years. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you know, but uh, uh, so when you mentioned Raj, you took me back to the seventh. I said, I guess this is my week to, to go back and pull out the old stuff. But uh, yeah, it's both together, guys. Dr. Blanchard and I make up the teachers. And today we have someone who I am proud to introduce. I'm going to let her tell the story of how we became connected and all of that. But Dr. Sherry Tomlin, who is a mental health nurse practitioner, um, and she has a story behind that as well. And we're going to let, let her tell you all that. But what I love about it is we have a shared passion in how we use our expertise in the field of mental health to help the black community. And she even has connection, uh, you know, with uh, our people in Africa. And hopefully we get a chance to talk about all of that. But uh, Dr. Tomlin, let's start out by just telling them how this came about. How did you go from being a nurse to going back, getting your doctorate and becoming a nurse practitioner and starting your focus on mental health? 
Well, Dr. Rick, thanks for inviting me today. It's a wonderful opportunity to be here. It's a privilege and an honor. And uh, I was someone, and good morning to your viewers. You know, I was someone who watched you for years and um, there wasn't a lot of men from our community that was doing the things that you were doing as far as, you know, social media and videos and getting the message. And it was everything that you say was on point. So it's like, it's tools you can use, it's information that, you know, that can make a difference and change lives. So people can put that, what you're saying into, um, into action. So this was uh, amazing to me because it was not a Eurocentric thing that I was watching and it was encouraging. So when I found you on the internet, I had just began my journey uh, to pursue my master's degree. And this is probably like five years ago. And this was immediately after I lost my mom, who I told you uh, she had put me up for adoption uh, to her sister. Her sister adopted me. Her sister was the total opposite of my mom. So she was someone who was hard nosed, you know, no love, no, you're just gonna come out to be something, whether you wanna be or not, you're gonna be something, you know, like a doctor or, you know, and, but you don't have the right approach to help that person, the right resources to guide that person. So you're missing a lot of things, even though our parents want us to be the best and the most successful, but they don't have a blueprint for that, you know? So years later, you know, I was in touch with my biological mom in New York and she was going through some things and she asked me to come stay with her. So I moved from Texas and I went up there. Within nine months, she passed away. But when it was like everything I in the world I wanted to give my mom because she was such a nice person. Okay. So she passed away. And then I started realizing she was someone who was a very positive person. Everything that I did was, ex and if you watch the uh, documentary about Kanye West, if you watch his mom, she was just like my mom, okay? And this is the mom I wish I had been to my children. Everything was, uh, there was a good in everything. Everything was a positive message. You know, my mom would say to me, I would say to mom, how do I look? Do I look, you know, better in this than what's her name? And my mom would say, oh, honey, you are the queen of Sheba. You know, and if I had all of those you know, people saying things like to me, that to me when I was growing up, probably would have had a different mindset. So my mindset was, I work hard. I really don't care about the next person. I just got to get mine and I crash and burn. That's okay. I'm going to go, go, go hard and 
I'm going to be someone. That's what was embedded in me, right? And then here comes this lady who's my bi biological mom to show me you can be, you know, a better person and you have to know who you are. So I say that to say this because um, in psychiatry, it's important uh, for our clients to be able to relate to us as providers, okay? So I'm able to now, you know, let my patients know, my clients know, they are in a safe environment. They're not gonna be judged or criticized. Um, I lived with that, you know, for many years. Um, so it's my mission today to serve as a model to the people in our community. Uh, every week, I have a client that comes to me who's awestruck. They're like, you know, are you the lady in that picture on psychology today? You know, uh, thank God I found you. I found someone I could relate to. I found someone who I'm comfortable with. You know, men and women. So the question is, why is it so difficult for our community, people in our community to find us? We need to have types of outlets, like what the platform we're on today. Uh, we need to be accessible to our community. We need to be approachable. And this is what, you know, blew me away with Dr. Rick. He was so approachable and responsive. This is like, we all need to take lessons from him. So <laughs> uh, years later, I got my doctorate degree. <laughs> and then I don't know how, oh, he came up with the Epic Realm War Room. And that's when I joined. I, I had gotten some books before and I was too busy to read it. But I said, one day I'm going to, you know, share my, uh, hopefully share my plans to help the community with Dr. Rick. Okay, so we ended up, you know, I ended up joining the epic realm war room that he has. And so that was a very big opportunity for me. So <laughs> here we are. So, and, and, and it's important to understand. Uh, and the reason why I wanted her to lay that foundation is because behind the push of everyone, there's a story that this is why I do what I do. This is the history behind it. And, and the story comes out like with me, my push and my passion behind Black Man Leagues can be traced back Again, in my childhood, similar thing. My great-grandparents reared me, and I never knew my father. You know, like I tell people all the time, the first time I saw my father was at his funeral. And you, you got to think, and I was 14 years old, and you've got to literally think that as a 14-year-old, I'm sitting here, and I'm having all of these ideas about when I finally meet my father, what we're going to do and how we're gonna reconcile and how he's gonna do this and how we're gonna do that. And then you get the news that he's passed. And as you're sitting there at the cemetery and you're watching the coffin descend, all your dreams of your relationship with your dad is going down. And I had to, at 14, start to process that everything that I ever hoped for with my dad was never going to happen. It was nothing I was gonna be. Then I realized that I spent the next 10 years to 15 years 
chasing accolades and presenting myself very successful to the world, but I was chasing accolades to prove to a dead man that I was worthy of his time. And you and, and I had to really get to a point to realize that the problem was never me. There was nothing I was going to do that was going to change him. And so I had to let that go. And then when I let that go, I, I, I had, you know, at the funeral, I met about eight siblings I didn't know I had. And now we're close. We are very close. We, I mean, we're close. You could never tell that we didn't grow up together because we, we are close. We are in each other's faces. We deal with everything and, and uh, whatever. Uh, and I learned about my dad through them. I learned about my dad through my grandmother, through my cousins, through my aunts and uncles, the stories that his baby brother who passed away uh, a little over a year ago, uh, he, we were very close in age. He was only like five years older than me. He was the baby of the family. And so we would have these talks and I learned a lot about my dad. And so it explained a lot about me because we don't understand just how much is passed on genetically. But so in this essence, you got to see something in that short time you spent with your mom that was life changing. And it gave you permission to become who you are now. Exactly. And it gave you passion to move in the area you're moving in now. Exactly. And, and that's the beauty of it. And so I guess like when we're in, and, 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 and I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the Epic Realm community, uh, which is a place that we invite people who want to elevate their lives in whatever area, maybe in entrepreneurship, academia, it may be in, in your relationships, finance, mental health. Wherever it is, if you're trying to improve, we give you a safe space. And I have to admit, you have been instrumental and you have been great help because I took it on and I knew it was going to be a challenge. And then I'm waking up every day and going like, Rick, when you took that on, you had 36 hours of work to do in 24 hours every day. And you took that on. And then I came to you and I said, hey, look, can you do this? And you're like, I'm on it. You and Sonia have been so uh, so much of a blessing in making sure that everybody feels loved and helped and welcomed in that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah. It's time for changes to be made and these are ways to make them, you know, there's just so many longstanding issues <laughs> in the black community that remain unresolved. Um, and because of social things are now amplified, okay? So to add insult to injury, uh, the science of psychology that, you know, we use in our community, it's Eurocentric, we know that, right? But it also is incompatible uh, for our people. There's so many different theories and methodologies that's out there, but it doesn't explain everything for everybody. So we need uh, approaches. I'm, I'm in the mental health field uh, and it's gonna be something where everyone in the community can use because uh, you know certain things we used to rely on the church for and we can't anymore. People, we can't rely on our celebrities, most of them, right? Uh, but we have to 
be able to rely on each other. I mean, the way we were created, we pretty much, you know, need each other. <laughs> so um, I feel that uh, to achieve our goals, uh, we have to have our community, people in our community have a sense of belonging and a sense of inclusion. The Epic Realm War Room allows that. There's other things that you have available for us. So whatever it is that, you know, that you're wanting to work on, thinking about, um, there's help for that. And there's, you know, we have to have that for our community. The same help that other people have doesn't mean it's going to benefit us, you know. Uh, so we have to shift the views of the, our brothers and sisters in our community. Um, and as healthcare providers, as educators like Dr. Blanchard, um, we have to be, uh, how would you say, accountable, okay? We have to offer guidance and solutions so that uh, the real problems are identified and we also have to implement uh, different uh, goals and measures. They call those, I guess, metrics <laughs> to see if what we're doing is working, if we are making progress. I see a lot of uh, research on the Black Psychology Association you know, site. And it's like they have uh, different strategies that they want to put in barbershops and do all these things. And has it been done? I haven't heard of anyone, you know, talking about that. So we have to have specific interventions, have tools and guidelines that can support our people uh, who are now living in a very diverse, complex and uncertain world. OK, so um, we have to restructure some of our theories. Uh, I know, Dr. Rick, you're a Ph.D., you know, this is your area. You come up, you do the studies, right? You do the research. And I've done research and studies as well. But my, as a doctorate of nursing practice, my degree is to use your degree, the PhD, uh, you know, things that you work on as with your PhD, uh, those studies, those research, implement them into practice. That's what my doctorate of nursing degree does. So I'm glad we're getting started. <laughs> right, right. And uh, I'm going to be adding uh, how for, you mentioned the Epic Ram. I think um, that is important. I'm going to be adding that to the description box uh, so that people who want to join the Epic Realm and be a part of what we're doing can. Something you mentioned that I want to go back to that is extremely important that people understand is one of the major problems that I have seen in the world of psychology when we start to deal with uh, African-American or uh, Blacks across the diaspora or Blacks on the continent is that you can apply a Eurocentric idea to an Afrocentric reality and get the results you're looking for. And so one of the things I had to do is I had to stand on the shoulders of people like Dr. Amos Wilson 
and Dr. Naeem Agbar specifically, who literally began the process of dissecting and anatomizing uh, Eurocentric psychology for the purpose of reconstructing it for an Afrocentric uh, uh, engagement. And so I've spent years breaking that down, studying that. Uh, one of the largest uh, <clears throat> projects I took on was the theory. Uh, I came to a theory called the uh, uh, collective bias theory. Uh, and the collective bias theory is an idea that we have a collective bias uh, that is created and generated in us, created by our experiences. And that bias in, interferes with how we really truly see things and how we operate. And so we work from a bias that works against us and it was constructed. The bias was literally created and constructed and we're operating on a collective level. And so that was the first thing that I moved in. And so I had to look at how do we deal with the bias? How do we uh, construct it? And the second thing that I had to deal with, there were several things. The second thing was the multi-generational transmission of trauma, which Dr. Joy uh, DeGru did a great job of presenting uh, and introducing, but I felt it needed to be examined further. It needed to be broken down. We needed to look at it and how it impacts us. And so there were a bunch of things that came out of that, that uh, for its uh, uh, learned uh, helplessness, vicarious learned helplessness, some things that we look at and literally we are learning how to be helpless by watching other people that we perceive to be helpless without understanding the entire dynamic of the story. So we had to look at that. Then the, the next thing I had to look at was multi-generational transmission of trauma. How was that happening? Well, and initially I, I, I looked at it as being something directly associated with social learning theory, that we're just simply being around people who are traumatized and we're learning how to be. Then I realized that there was a genetic tie. And so I got into epigenetics and then that just expanded out the whole entire thing even more. And so it, it became this, okay, man, we have a lot of things going on, but ultimately where we're at now. And one of the reasons why uh, people come to me and they go like, what about insurance? Like, you know, yes, I can give you all the codes and you can apply to your insurance company. Sometimes they will reimburse you, but I've learned that I don't even try that route. And what we've gotten into now is we've got this nice little thing going on uh, where if I think they're a good fit, you, 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 you're in a place where you, you, you know, because you're doing it from a, a nurse practitioner perspective, you can still build. But where I'm from, I'm so off the reservation from the Eurocentric idea of what psychology is, that they're like, no, we, no, no, we, 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 we're not, no, that's not, but it works. I have a 99.9 something percent success rate with my clients because I'm treating them in a place, you gotta understand, a part of psychology is experience. Our experience is nothing like theirs. So you can't, you can't, work from the same perspective of how you're going to deal with it. Another part that I've introduced into how I work is the impact of neurology on psychology. Uh, and I jumped on the back of Dr. Daniel A. Mann for that. Uh, and, you know, my whole thing is I, I, I won't even present or tell people, look, I came up with this because the vast majority of everything either comes from me. There, there's a very sharp list of people that I looked into and says, I'm digging what you're doing. Let me take that and run with it. Dr. 
uh, France Fanon uh, from the 1950s, uh, Dr. Aaron T. Beck, who is a white, uh, he just passed away not too long ago, uh, a white uh, psychiatrist who introduced cognitive uh, cognitive therapy, the theory of uh, cognitive therapy. And then we moved into ours, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, Dr. Naeem Agbar, and Dr. Amos Wilson. Uh, oh, and Dr. Joy DeGry and Dr. Howard Stevenson out of the University of Pennsylvania. That's pretty much it. They give you so much, and then you just take it and run with that, and before you know it, you're looking up and going, I'll be doing this the rest of my life and I won't finish. <laughs> and I'm good with that. But that's how I came up with Black Man Lee. Dr. Howard Stevenson and Dr. Joy DeGroat, uh, Joy DeGroat, uh, the group came up and they talked about African-American adolescent and young adult male violence. And that was this process. process. Dr. Joy DeGroat came up with the first African-American adolescent respect scale because we found out that the feeling of being disrespected is the number one cause of violence among adolescents. So I, what I've realized is that if you properly socialize young black males, you, you uh, reduce the risk of violence. And that's how the Black Man Lead Rite of Passage came up. So now here we are. And you, you come and you introduce yourself and you blow my mind the first time we talk because at the time you came on to the Epic Realm, uh, it was a time in which I was offering a free rapid change breakthrough session for people who became members. Right. So I literally got to sit in front of you. And the first thing you tell me is I inspired you over the last four years or five years that you listened to me to get through what you were going through in the pursuit of your doctorate and all this. And like, so I'm sitting there and I, I there's no amount of money that can beat that. No amount of money that can beat that. And uh, it was like you came on right after a week where we're on. And we're actually on, and Doc and I were on with somebody, and, and a young lady came on and said that listening to me two years ago saved her life. Wow. And it's like, okay, yeah. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And so I look at you and I say, you're doing what you're supposed to do. And you're committed to it. And the conversations we have are just exciting. So I want you to go back and, and, and sort of talk about this journey now that you're here you know and we're we have this opportunity we're we're in the epic realm and i watch you how you move and how you handle people and there's a level of gentleness that i think we lack in our profession everything is rigid everything is this you know people feel like the moment they walk into an office they feel like they're being shrunk and you know nobody wants to be shrunk people want to be helped People want to be seen. People want to be heard. They want to know that they exist and they don't need to be shrunk. They don't need to walk into a room where they feel they're overwhelmed by this overeducated idiot. Right. And, and, and to me, that's what- Aloof, aloof expert. There you go. You, you said so much nicer than me. But, but so, so go ahead and elaborate on that. Well, you know, my patients, they're usually searching uh, for something that matches their experience. So my inner and outer uh, experiences really matches theirs. And that's 
what attracts my clients to me. I have a deep understanding of their struggles. Um, so they know and they're comfortable that they're not talking to someone who is, you know, some aloof expert. So I honor their wisdom. I encourage their greater self-exploration and I help them to find ways to improve their own self-understanding. Uh, a lot of what our people are going through right now is um, self-negating thoughts. Um, we see uh, different people and shows, like even our own people, you know, judging uh, each other. And a lot of people, they already have, you know, they, they're going, they've had been going through this trauma narrative mm -hmm. for so long. They've been part of heavy religious influences and they're in a consumer culture as well. So it's like, what do you go with? Which way do you go? Which way will work out? You know, which way will hurt me more? You know, and how do I make the right decisions? Right. So this is um, very important to be able to, um, you know, work on with our uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, some people, they are struggling with the effects of being betrayed, abandoned, uh, we said trauma, um, and they just have negative emotional processing system. We see it uh, on full display, you know, on social media. And when we were growing up, I know, and I know, you know, <laughs> because of my age, I'm a couple older years older than you, Doctor Rick. So, yeah, I'm 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 the baby on the broadcast today. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know, even though we feel you're our big brother, we stand behind you. Is let's see what he's doing, you know? Yeah, but you're really, uh, yeah, a baby brother. But yep. um, yeah, but you're the trailblazer, and you're the one that's getting us out of the shadows and the corners and coming forward to do what we're supposed to be doing. It's long overdue, so. Um, you know, a lot of things have been uh, put into people where it is causing uh, issues that, and it needs to be addressed because um, we don't need to be judged by others. We need to be able to solve our problems and, you know, have someone be able to work with us and listen to us. And with anyone out there, even if you're not a therapist or a psychiatric provider, a psych provider, you know, listen. And then if, if you find someone with a problem and then help them to get to, you know, the help that they need, at least do that much. I had one client yesterday. She was telling me, thank God I was able to get this guy to a therapist that I've been talking to. You know, he called me doctor. He thought I was his therapist. And I'm like, but you're not. Okay. So don't continue to give advice that, you know, you think is helpful, but maybe it's not. There's just so many different levels, you know, to uh, mental health and psychiatry. So just get the listen and then help the people get the help that they need. Right. So yeah. That's, yeah. I, Doc, I remember, uh, you know, even as a professional, 
trying to find services for my own daughter. And you talk about, you know, worrying about the whole Eurocentric uh, professional ideology that most of our practitioners have, both black and white. Um, so you can't always say because they're black that they're going to give you the, the type of services that you expect. And it's the same thing in education as well, you know. Right. You want someone to have an ideology that is more aligned with, with, with your lived experiences. And I was reading some uh, some data before, you know, in preparation for this. And it was interesting that people with uh, who are highly religious are more likely not to seek uh, mental health uh, uh, professional services. People in the 18 to 35 are, are more likely not to. And women are womenly women no matter what demographic you're talking about, white, black, uh, different socioeconomic levels, they're more likely to seek uh, mental health uh, professional service. So it, it's kind of interesting that there are all these barriers, you know, um, there aren't enough of you out there. But then on top of that, you know, I think that a lot of people like myself, you're leery of going out and uh, trying to find those services because there's no vetting process. You have to do that vetting process yourself to figure out who it is that's going to be providing you with services or maybe a loved one uh, with those services. Uh, can you, maybe you and Dr. Rick could talk a little bit about that for our viewers. How do you navigate that so that, so that you do know that you have someone who is more aligned with the uh, African-American experience? Well, <laughs> I wasn't trying to put you on the spot, but <laughs> it's yeah. difficult. I know it's a difficult question. You know? Find out what their views are, you know. Um, is it rooted in the way their parents treated them? Uh, do they have fear? Do they have, uh, you know, what unresolved issues are they allowing to keep them away from their uh, potential, you know? experiencing their fullest potential. Uh, it happens. I'm watching it today in our community. Mm -hmm. Our men, especially our men, you know, they are, I will tell you, I go to Africa when I visit and they have supermarkets there and shops and all that. But if I were to just walk down the street and say to one of the guys, you know, I want something made, you know, the next day it will be done. This is how Black men are. They're creative. Um, and I don't think we're asking them to help us and to join us and to, you know, and that we need them. Okay. So, and it's the same thing here. Black men here, if I ask anything, they will, they're builders, creators, you know. So it's like their gifts, their potentials need to be, uh, you know more um need to be seen more okay for some reason i think it's being hidden <laughs> i don't know why you know i i work in the uh, k through 12 one of the largest uh, school systems uh, in america and south florida and one of the things that i'm seeing and, I, and i've talked to doc about it i'm seeing you know i'm originally from indiana but when i came down here in 2019 i could not believe the number of baker acted young people when you're talking about kids being Baker active, you know, they're taken in for uh, mental evaluation. We call it immediate detention in Indiana, but down here in Florida, they call it 
Baker Act. And so are you seeing that same thing across the board in, in, in the country? But, but down here, I mean, it, it's amazing how many kids are Baker Acted every single day for mental health uh, services. And it, it makes me wonder what, what's going on in the culture down here in South Florida compared to other places. Because I don't see it as high in other places. Uh, I'm from South Bend, so I'm close to Chicago and Detroit. And uh, I lived in Indianapolis for 15 years. I don't even see it. Uh, in those places as high as it is down here. Right. So uh, unlike uh, the professionals from Houston, you know, Houston is like the happening spot. They have the media, they have, you know, ways to get through to the community. I mean, you name it, they have it in Houston. So if somebody were to plan an event in Houston, it would probably be very successful. But if they were to have it here in Dallas, it probably won't be as successful because um, for some reason that area, you know, they have a cert certain outlets and they have certain systems in place where they can reach their people, their population. So we have to begin there. Uh, take a take a what is that? A page out of the Houston playbook. Hint, hint, Dr. Rick and you know all of those folks up there, right? They know how to get the word out, the message out, what we're doing, how we can help, who you can call. You know, you go to other areas and people have no idea what's going on, what's available, none. So it's like, how do we, you know, uh, change that? Right, yeah. I agree. I agree. Doc, Dr. Rick, since I've known him, you know, he's bombarded with, with uh, clients, you know. Like you say, there's only so much that Houston and and, and uh, therapists in Houston can do. You know, uh, we need them to be uh, accessible in other places as well. You know, and have the right mindset and ideology to help our people as well. You know, exactly. Before I inter interject on that same topic, there's a qu couple of questions popped up. Normally, I don't uh, answer respond to the first question, but I'm going to go ahead and do it uh, because it normally, it very rarely comes from a good place. The question is, the person said three doctors, huh? Which dis disciplines, if I may ask, it's, you know, it goes back to the theory we talked about earlier. One of my first uh, studies and dissertations, uh, uh, collective cognitive bias. And in collective cognitive bias, there's an, an idea of mentality of a certain expectation and a certain perception. And the thought that three doctors could be on the same episode at the same time. And this isn't the first time this has happened on this show, as a matter of fact. No, it's not. You know, uh, we tend to want people who excel and we exist. And the question asks which, so which disciplines? Uh, Dr. Tomlin, Dr. Sherry Tomlin and I operate in uh, the mental health field. She has a doctorate in uh, mental health as a nurse practitioner. Uh, I actually have dual doctorates. I have a doctorate in theology and I have a doctorate in psychology. Dr. Blanchard has a doctorate in education and he specializes in student persistence uh, and retention. And it is focused on, he focuses on creating wraparound services that help provide the resources that are needed and necessary for students to finish their education. The second question is from the same person. And it is, is Eurocentric a code word for feminist? No, 
Eurocentric is the, exactly what it says. It's a focus on any particular idea, system, or social concept that is focused on uh, a Eurocentric or European idea of what is. And when you are coming from an Afrocentric perspective, you have an Afrocentric idea. Right. It's 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 focusing on the lived experiences of African Americans, opposed to uh, when we say Eurocentric, then white is is the default. So everything right. is viewed from their lived experiences and not ours. It, it's as simple as that. Right. Uh, and the person clarified, they live in College Station, which uh, is in Texas and not that far from Houston. Um, Texas A&M Aggies are up, uh, up there. And so there are a lot of educated people and she, clarify, uh, she clarifies that she knows PhD. So, um, and she thanks us for the clarification, by the way. And so now let's go back into this whole idea about the, the Eurocentric versus the Afrocentric. And you, Doc, uh, specifically pointed out the fact that there is this trend of Baker acting or immediate uh, detention or, you know, pulling them in. And what happens is, and I wrote, literally wrote a book about it. I wrote a position paper on it. Matter of fact, the last book, Academic Apartheid, is about the disproportionality of special education referral. Well, one way that that happens is the uh, assignment of certain uh, certain uh, intellectual uh, disabilities or mental health disabilities, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, uh, a number of other different things. And what also happens it simultaneously is not only does it push them into a special education category, where now, uh, you know, you're, you're on some type of IP or whatever, where there's a special process or program that you're put on. But also, when I classify you as ADHD, or I classify you as opposition, oppositionally defiant. Now it opens me up to give you psychotropic drugs. Now, when you start talking about psychotropic drugs, like uh, Vyvanse, Ritalin, Concerta, uh, and, and, and Norvast. These, 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 these drugs are literally Schedule II drugs. That's not a whole lot of use for them. And for instance, Ritalin is literally one molecule away from cocaine. It's a stimulant. Now, what, what, what we learned with dealing with kids who are quote unquote classified as ADHD is attention deficit hyperactive disorder. Okay, what we learn is that actually when you give someone who is hyperactive a stimulant, it has the reverse effect. Ritalin is a stimulant. You give it to the wrong person, they're going to be, you know, but you give it to a kid that's hyper and it tends to settle them down. The problem is now you're drugging kids to make them uh, subjective to a learning process that is not natural. Uh, a natural developmental process for a kid their age. Kids who are six years old don't learn by sitting still. They learn by moving. Absolutely. They learn by observing. They learn by experiencing. They learn by touching. So you're expecting someone who doesn't naturally sit still to sit still and learn and retain. And so you, you, you're really inhibiting them. And then on top of that, uh, 
expecting them to sit still and learn. You're also now penalizing them when they can't and classifying them as learning disabled. Finally, you have this big cultural gap where you're not taking in their taking into consideration their lived experiences. Absolutely. Which is who which is a huge part of their psychology. Their lived experiences. So they're coming in with a lived experience that you have no idea about. You know, so something they're doing that is completely normal to them is off the board to you, and you're punishing them for it. And so now you're herding them into all types of situations that give them labels. And in Visionetics, which is a concept I developed, I talk a lot about label givers. The parents are your primary label givers at birth. What they say about you and to you, that's why even in her adulthood, her uh, Dr. Sherry's life trajectory changed in the nine months she got to spend with her birth mother because the label changed. You're beautiful. You're the queen of Sheba. You're gorgeous. You are, those things somebody that you give gravity and weight to are powerful. So but what our secondary label givers are our teachers. The people we spend the most time with, and what we're doing is we're trusting white teachers to label our children. And we're not just talking about for academic purposes. The moment you tell a kid that they're learning disabled, they take on the mindset that they're dumb. And what happens is the moment that kid accepts that, it becomes a part of their self-image. Now, their behavior is going to reflect how they see themselves. That's how you maintain sanity, is that your behavior reflects how you see yourself, no matter what you see. That's how you can get somebody that the world looks at and thinks it's no way possible they should be, should be successful, but they are. It's because somewhere along the line, somebody planted a seed and told them you can do anything you want to. Now, while I wouldn't necessarily want to use him as an example, but he's probably the busy, biggest example now. Elon Musk has autism. But somebody told him it didn't matter. Right. Somebody told him it wasn't a, a, a disability because he let that mind go where it wanted to go. And that's the beauty of this thing. The beauty of this thing is we allow our kids to be pushed into a box. Mm. We allow them to be hedged in with a glass ceiling. And what they do is they operate based on the confinements of the box they've been given, and nobody is giving them permission to step outside of the box where real things happen. Absolutely. And so, Doc, what, uh, Dr. Tomlin, uh, go ahead and elaborate on that. So they are, in essence, being misguided. A lot of our youth uh, and they're going to grow up not having uh, the truth and the knowledge and the meaningful experiences they're supposed to have. So uh, how much progress are we going to make in our community when on one hand, you know, we have uh, parents, we have outside 
our society that we have to interact with that's not uh, able, okay, to meet our needs, help us meet our needs, and uh, you know, make uh, make changes in our community. So we look at our community and not a whole lot's going on except for you hear, oh, the black guy is saying this about the black woman and the pastor is not helping the church. And it's like, how do we make these corrections? You know? uh, and of course, Dr. Rick's favorite word, how do we make an impact? Yeah, yeah. at this point. You just described you just described what Dr. Carter G. Woodson said is miseducation of the Negro. Even by <laughs> even by ourselves, you know. I remember uh my uh senior year, uh, you know, my mother basically told gave me two ultimatums, and that was you're either going to college or you're going to the service. <laughs> and uh we're sitting we're sitting in the uh, counselor's office, right? And so this white counselor basically tells my mother, I'm not college material. Mm. And my mother looks at him and said, you know what? Give me a black counselor. I'm going to get you get out of my face. That's what she said. <laughs> so the black counselor comes in and says, we have a program called the Indiana University Groups Program. And so the, what that did, it allowed, uh, you know, I was an athlete through high school and, and didn't really focus much on education. I think I had around a 2.0 or something. You know, I didn't do too much, but this program allowed me to go to Indiana University in the summer. And then if you, you know, if you got a 2.5 or higher, you were admitted on probation for the first year. And that's how I went to college. But if my mother hadn't had the sense yeah, to yeah. not listen yeah. to that counselor who was basically saying, Michael is not college material, yeah. you know? <clears throat> You know, I don't know if that 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 counselor is still alive now, but I think it would just be so fulfilling to be able to walk in there and say, "How you doing?" I'm Dr. Michael Blanchard. Remember, you told me I wasn't college material. Well, um, I did. Well, before he died, Doc, I did. I was able to go back and show him my undergraduate degree from Indiana University in sociology. So he did. He did see that. I did get the opportunity to do that. Great, great, great. You know, my my thing is, but again, that goes to the very point that was made earlier is that we have to, first of all, be able to protect and insulate our children from outside interferences. One of the biggest things I took away from our conversation with Latava uh, months ago mm -hmm. is that when she reared her kids, she made this point that I that just totally blew me away. Yeah, I she said that she insulated her kids from the Eurocentric reality around them so much that she can remember when her older kids the first time they saw a white person, she literally did not allow them in that space to yeah. where they could get insulated. So they weren't watching television shows in which this idea, this social idea that whites are smarter than blacks, that whites are just not because it was there. It was there. It was it was it was there. Think about it. Think about it. There are certain things right now. And, and, and I'm going to make my, I'm going to use something real superficial to make my point. Uh, but back then, that was a natural assumption. I came from an all-black elementary, but I went to a magnet school in middle school. And in middle school, I was around white people for the first time. And that was a natural assumption by me that they were smarter mm -hmm. until I got to engage them. And I started to dominate them in the classroom. And then it started to stand out that 
I'm actually pretty exceptional. But I'm going to show you how powerful the media is in presenting messages. Right now, two out of three of us are wearing glasses. How many grew up believing that people had glasses on were smarter than other people? Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, and it was an image that was created in the media that if a person is wearing glasses, and Lord forbid they have a pocket, pocket protector on. You know, they got to be the smartest person in the room if they got glasses and a pocket protector. <laughs> and, 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 and the idea that athletes couldn't be smart. I actually knew more honor roll students that were athletes than I knew that weren't. But these are just perceptions. Well, you got to understand that my love for psych, psych, psychology came from Dr. Francis Cress Wilson. Now, I knew from about eight years old that I was going to be one of two things. I was either going to be a lawyer or I was going to be a psychologist. Um, and what changed me was 1985, my junior year in high school, seeing Dr. Welsing on Dr. Francis Cress Welsing on the Phil Donahue show, defending her Crest theory of color confrontation. This is before she had released the ISIS papers. And she's on there, and this white man on the panel. And she's giving the Crest Theory of Color. If you, don't, you haven't read the Crest Theory of Confrontation, the last thing you want to see is a sister defending that in front of white men who are supposed to be uh, intellectually superior. Well, now, why this is important is, this is 1985, so this is immediately on the heels of this idea, this push in the media of black intellectual inferiority that being black meant you were naturally inferior intellectually to whites. Well, that was being put to rest and she put the nail in the coffin. She was killing it. And at that moment, right there at the age of 16, I said, uh, 17, I said, I am going to be a psychologist because I want to know what makes people tick. I want to know what makes them move. I want to know why I do things, because if I know why and how, I can change it. And that's what I've been doing the rest of my life. But it, it, it starts with that notion of releasing our kids and, and liberating them. We talk about liberation all the time, but we don't really truly have an understanding of what liberation is. Liberation is the freedom to move and act and behave based on your own interests. And in order to do that, there has to be a release from an idea that we need them to say it's okay. Right. And that's how I that's why I operate in the mood I, mode I operate in. I don't seek their approbation, I don't seek their approval. And and yes, it has cost me money because there are people who can't afford me without being able to, to, to uh, use their insurance and their insurance won't approve me because no, I'm not dancing to your music. I'm here to help people, not just to sit up and do something on a system that really doesn't even work for white people. Let's be real. Right. It's not even working for y'all and you want me to use it on my people. And it was built for y'all by y'all. But you want me to use it on my people and y'all y'all running around here crazy than everybody. So no, I'm going to look at the lived experiences of my people and I'm going to find out the best way to help them. And if that means that I don't get the bill, I'm good with that. I'm going to take the people who can't afford me. I'll find a way to help the people who can't. 
But what I'm not going to do is have you sitting up having me dance into a song that my people can't dance to. It's that simple. And that's the fight that we have in, in, in education now. You know, um, the entire educational system is based on educating us against our own self-interest. And that, that, that is the biggest problem that I see and the biggest fight that we have, you know. And all the more reason why we need to educate our own, like uh, Sister Latava was doing. She had homeschooled all of her kids. And that made a big difference, you know. Yeah, but, and, and, and you know, like, I check in on uh, her youngest son. I check in on, and this kid, you know, he's got a kid on the way. And so, you know, I check in on him and everything like that, but it blows my mind. Another thing, Doc, Dr. Tomlin, that Latava uh, did is in homeschooling, in order for them to graduate, they have to start and run a business successfully for their senior year. So they all left with that ability. And I think Bilal is like, what, 21? Yeah, somewhere around maybe maybe a year or two older, but yeah. Yeah, he's he's that age and he's already got his own construction company. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Imagine if we did that with our kids today, you know? Everybody's not gonna go to college now. You know, a lot of right. a lot of the millennials are, are pushing back and saying, Hey, I don't wanna take on that enormous amount of student loan debt that you doctors have. Right. And without any with without a a, a certain return on my investment. A lot of the millennials right. are not doing it. They're like you say, doc, they're going to YouTube and they're bypassing traditional education. Just show me what I need to know to be su successful. That's it. Right. And the, the, the beauty is, and, and, and I was talking to Marion, for those of you who don't know, Marion is my wife. Uh, I was talking to Marion and we were talking about how, right, you know, it's, while they were industrializing, deindustrializing the inner city, which is how a lot of black men were taking care of their families without advanced educations right. and earning great livings. People in Detroit, for instance, were working at the plants, at the right. auto, automobile plants. And, and Gary, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and there were all these different places. Like, for instance, my grandfather had a second grade education, but he was a master welder for Dresser Industries who built all rigs. Uh, that were being uh, deployed in the Gulf of Mexico. So he did that and he was able to do well in supporting the family, but they deindustrialized. They moved all that stuff. That was instead they moved it to different countries. They moved it out of the city. And so that left black men not having anywhere that they could uh, get a good job to take care of their family. Then what they did is they took uh, wood shops auto mechanics, plumbing, uh, electrician training, all that stuff out of the high schools. So then those were things that you, here's what happens. If I take up auto mechanics or if I take up wood, or if I take up plumbing, not only do I have a skill set that I can literally use the moment I walk out of high school, I have the foundation on which I can start my own business. I don't need anybody to hire me for a company. I can put me an ad in the green sheet. I can put me an ad in here. I can put a sign on the side of my car and I can literally make a living. And 
better than most people with bachelor degrees because the average plumber is making a hundred grand. But there's no, there's no, you're going to have to want to go out and get it. But what they did, they start selling the degree. They start selling and pushing the degree. And I obviously I'm an advocate for education, but my thing is education isn't simply in the academic realm. Education is the holistic experience by which we empower and prepare our children to go out into a world and compete and win. It's far more than just what you can get in a classroom. It's what you can get. It says I'm empowered. So education begins the moment you start to tell that kid who he is. The education begins the moment you start to tell them what they're capable of. Absolutely. And so that's important. And so what we are going to be responsible for. And Doc, you've heard me say this so many times, we can't count, that we need a group of people who are willing to plant seeds that they may not live long enough to see come to fruition. Absolutely. That's what we need. We need people who don't need a pat on the back to do the work because your pat on the back might come posthumous. Yeah. It might come 20 years after you're gone. The work you started finally comes to fruition and they're celebrating you, but your grandkids get to see it. Their kids get to see it. The legacy lives on. Imagine being the daughter, the daughter of Malcolm X or the daughter of the son of Martin Luther King or the descendants of Carter G. Woodson. They weren't appreciated as much as we would like to think Absolutely. while they were living. They were hated. Yeah. And, and, and so the thing is, I tell people all the time, the first half of my life was about me. But the second half was about building a legacy that outlives me. And that's what we've got to get, especially our men. We've got to get our men. But see, black men have been robbed of so much that any pat on the back, any recognition, any, any, any inkling that I exist, gets me to settle. Yeah. I'll do anything if you just say I'm, 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 I'm something special, if you recognize me. So what happens is we don't know how to play the long game because we're so desperate to be seen, so desperate to be heard, so desperate to be felt that we don't see that there's got to be a long game. There's got to be said something. And I believe the children that we're talking about right now, that's the win. Too many of those 25, 35 and over are already indoctrinated into a way of thinking that we're not going to rescue enough of them from that indoctrination that we make a difference. But if we take a whole generation of children and insulate them the way Latava insulated her kids until they are empowered enough to move out into a world and not be influenced by it, but to impact it, we won't see the things we're talking about. Right. We won't see that until we get a generation, a whole generation that is not individualized because that's the biggest thing they did to us. They took so much from us that all we can think about is us. I'm thinking about me. I can't worry about you. I can't. That's one of the first things I start thinking. I got to leave them all back there. That's what they want you to do. Leave them all back there. You won. But you left you left everybody else in the community. You out there living in the gated community with Tom and Becky and the rest of them. And you left everybody in the community. You don't you don't got to the point now. Not only do you not go back, not only do you not send anything back, 
You want to pretend you were never there. <laughs> you can't win that way. You're going to have to say, look, I'm going to throw this thing back. When I get up there, I'm pulling it and I'm throwing it back. I'm going to tie it off and I'm going to hold on to it for dear life. Y'all come up behind me. And, and that's something we've got to get past that individualized mindset, first and foremost, because it's going to need a collective effort. We cannot do it as individuals. It's true. I agree. And so, uh, Dr. Tomlin, let everybody know how they can reach you and you know, some of the things that you're going to have going on in the near future. Uh, and then we'll get ready to close this thing out today. Okay. Yeah. So hopefully we will be able to resolve some of these incongruencies uh, so that our people can create their own destiny and basically have the courage to live in a place where they can embrace uh, their future. And so I worked on that myself. Uh, I have my practice uh, in Texas. It's uh, guidingstarhealthcare.org. I'm trying to get the guidingstarhealthcare.com back. I'm just coming back from Las Vegas, so I'm, uh, you know, getting that back up and running, hopefully by the end of this month. Okay. Uh, I do have several patients lined up already, <laughs> so that's, you know, I just had a lady yesterday. She was like, it's like my patients are crossing the desert, the oceans, you know, trying to find me and get to me. It's like one day this is not going to be so hard. Okay. So we just need to do more to get the message out that we're here and um, we can help. And it could be video conferencing, face-to-face, -face, whatever our patients prefer. Uh, you're not too far away. If you're in Texas, if you have an iPhone, we can connect. Um, I also have a website, drsherrytomlin.com. The book I wrote um, a couple of years ago is called The African Bodyguard. The African Bodyguard is a story, it's a, actually a true story about a young man in Senegal in Africa. And he has cows that you know, he's trying to get the milk to market, but the government won't help him. So what happens is France sends their milk, which is diluted and has additives that could, you know, hurt, hurt consumers in the long run. So instead of fresh natural milk, okay, the government chooses to bring in things that are going to be harm detrimental to the health of, you know, their citizens in the long run. So he, I've met him on Facebook. He asked me to join his fight. And when I heard his story, I was like, this is really something. And that's when I wrote the book, The African Bodyguard. It is on Amazon. It's on my website, drsherrytomlin.com. And I had one of the guys in Nigeria, in Nollywood, uh, try to make the movie. The only thing is, I think he got it wrong because he had A-list stars but they were just in the wrong role. So we're trying to remake that. There was a gentleman from, uh, you know, the uh, Black Panther crew who reached out to me and he's wrote the second part. And I hope to remake this movie and also have a part two that's more uh, Afrocentric. But the karate is, I love karate. I don't know if you love karate. 
but to watch African men do karate, it's like, yeah, y'all need to, <laughs> y'all need to go places with this. Y'all need right. to be seen. Yeah. So well, that's what I'm working on. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, you know, we have committed to working together, uh, moving forward and we're doing work together in the Elpic Rail uh, War Room. And I am excited to see where that goes. And hopefully we'll get a chance to get you back to get caught up on where things are going. Doc, you have anything you want to add before we exit? No, I just want to thank Dr. Tomlin for blessing us with her knowledge and experience today. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And we have something, we both have something in common. Uh, both of us were mentored by the young one here. <laughs> to get our doctorates, <laughs> right, right? And the other thing we have in common, and we'll have a conversation at some other time, uh, I was also adopted uh, when I was a few months old. So we have that. And I also actually found uh, both uh, my biological parents, father and mother. So we'll have to have a conversation about that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that is a story in its, of itself. It as it as what, what turns out is, he uh, is adopted and reared, has a great life, but he finds his biological mom and now his biological mom cares for his adopted mom. Yeah. Oh my goodness. My, my yeah. biological mother is a nurse, just like you. And uh, my adopted mother will be 92 in uh, April. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a unique story, you know, something yeah. I probably, uh, I've already told Doc that I'm, I'm definitely going uh, to write, write that. Yeah, that's, yeah that's I, found, I found my uh, uh, biological mother at 26 and uh, my biological father at 46. So, yeah. mm, interesting. Yeah. So actually, now that, now that I, you know me, the baby, the baby of the family can't be left out. You know, how, you know how that works. <laughs> All three of us are actually adopted. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, you know, uh, thank God, you know, uh, for family, because like you, Dr. Tomlin, my great grandparents adopted me. So I stayed in the family, but it, it created so many opportunities for me that I would not have had if I were reared by a 15 year old mother. Absolutely. My, my uh, biological mother was 15 as well. So it, it, yeah. it worked out well for the both of us actually. Yeah. Because we know what the statistics would be like if we were raised by a 15 year old mother in the sixties. You know? Right. And, and so uh, amazing, amazing. So uh, on that note, we're going to get out of here. Everybody, thank you once again for allowing us to invade your time and space on this weekend. I know it's a lot of things that you could be doing, but I watch you and the viewership stayed pretty steady the whole time. So you guys got in. A couple of people left notes saying they had to go do some things, but they were going to come back and finish it later. And I really hope that people take the time to look at this and see just how much we have to do, but how much we're doing. Yeah. And uh, we encourage you to get involved. One of the things that I encourage you to do is support the Black Man Lead Right of Passage Initiative. Reach out to Dr. Tomlin and let her know uh, if she can help you. Uh, I also put the link to join 
the Epic Realm Community of High Achievers, which is a safe space for growth in almost every area of your life. And join that. It's an annual membership. You definitely want to be a part of it because we are doing We're having a ball. Doc, are you doing the Q&A this week while I got you on? Uh, are, 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 no, Dr. Tomlin, <laughs> are you doing the Q&A for the Epic today or what What are we doing? Because I've been kind of disconnected this week. I can do it. I'm ready. You sure? Yes. Okay, yes. so we'll, we'll get on that. And uh, another thing I want to say is it's great you two individuals are taking the stigma away from seeking mental black mental health services yes. you know yes. because you share your vulnerability so i want to commend you both at that because we still have a long way to go in getting people to be willing to accept mental health services and then seek out the correct people to provide those services so i want to thank both of you yes thanks for that awesome well that's it everybody thanks for stopping in we will see you again next week are we are we on next week doc next week i'll be traveling we'll be on the we'll be on the next two weeks after that okay sounds good we'll see you in two weeks